When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 96 of the Burden and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest is Mr. Scott Greenberg. He's another great guest from our friends over at C.S. Lewis Publicists and Company, and he is an internationally recognized speaker, author, and coach who helps franchise owners grow their businesses, build high-performing teams, and create unforgettable customer experiences. He has given presentations in all 50 states and throughout the world with franchise clients that include McDonald's, Great Clips, GNC, Remax, Smoothie King, Global Franchise Group, and many more. For 10 years, Scott was a multi-unit franchise owner with Edible Arrangements, winning Best Customer Service and Manager of the Year awards out of more than 1,000 locations worldwide. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book, the Wealthy Franchisee. Now, I know you're going to love this conversation because Scott is going to talk about a lot of things that are near and dear to us because of how we interact with franchises on a daily basis. As we go through this book, you're going to hear a lot of things that make you go, aha, that's why this business is doing good in my area. Or this is why this business is struggling. And you're really going to be able to identify what some of these problems are. So with that, I'm going to shut up, get out of the way, and let you get into this outstanding interview I had with Mr. Scott Greenberg. All right, folks, uh, welcome to this episode of the Burner Command podcast. As I said in the pre-roll, my guest today is Scott Greenberg. Uh, Scott, thanks for joining us today. So glad to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. You know, uh, as as I mentioned in the pre-roll, we're going to be talking quite a bit about uh, your uh, new book, The Wealthy Franchisee, Game-Changing Steps to Becoming a Thriving Franchise Superstar. And I know with my audience here, you know, I've got a lot of existing entrepreneurs. Uh, Some folks are starting their own businesses. Uh, Some folks are in uh, already established businesses. But some folks may be considering the the franchise route. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. I'm so glad to be here and answer any questions. Yeah, well, let's start you with the first question I ask everybody. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? I think people whose leadership style is to issue commands, it's going to be a real burden. It's going to be awful. It's going to take up your time. It's going to cause you stress. And you're not going to get the results you want from the very people whom you're commanding. I think that in order for us to effectively manage and lead other people, there needs to be as much focus on their development as there is on them getting specific work done. 
And a lot of people in leadership, ownership, management positions don't get that. They hire people and they say, okay, I pay you in exchange for paying your salary. You have to do what I say. And theoretically, that makes sense, but that's just not the reality that, you know, we are emotional beings that, um, you know, we'll hear a tone of voice we don't like. We have our own goals. We have our own fears. We have our own desires. And so I think to effectively lead and manage people, we have to go beyond issuing commands and we need to enroll them in your mission. We need to focus on their growth and their development. We need to turn them into leaders. And it takes a little more time up front to focus on their development. But they become so effective, it saves you all this time in the back end when they're doing things without you having to tell them, without you having to retell them, they're getting it right and it saves you time. So if your approach to leadership is just giving commands, it's going to be a burden. You're not going to get stuff done. It's certainly not going to be efficient. It's going to take up a lot of your time and energy. But if your approach to leadership is to coach and develop your employees, to focus on them as much as on their work, they're going to work a lot more effectively. They're going to save you time. And uh, being a leader won't be a burden. It will be an absolute pleasure. Mm. No, I like that. I mean, I, I like that aspect of investing in uh, investing in your team, investing in their growth and, and helping them, you know, take those next steps in their career, whatever it is. So I, I really I really like that answer a lot. Um, so obviously, we're probably going to be talking about uh, franchises and, and ownership and uh, leadership positions in franchises and things like that through this conversation. But let's start out like I always like to start conversation like this, like the, the people don't know anything about the topic. So what sets, let's say somebody's listening and they've already got their own, let's say landscaping business, for instance. Uh, but they want to buy a franchise, let's say of the, the local McDonald's franchise is up for sale. What are the fundamental differences between owning your own business and owning a franchise? Well, it's a great question. And, and first, that even if people aren't interested in franchising, anyone interested in business ownership can learn a lot from the franchise model. Uh, and I'll describe what it is and how it's different than you know an individual owner, and you'll see how it's you know, it's rich in, in wisdom. A, you know, a typical mom and pop business, say it's the landscape concept, you have your way of taking care of lawns, of taking care of people's shrubs, that kind of thing. And you decide you want to do it and you figure out every aspect of the business yourself. You do whatever research you can. You try to perfect your tools and techniques for not only taking care of lawns, but also marketing it as a business. From every aspect, even coming up with what is your business name and what is your business entity and how you're going to market it. And you have to answer every question yourself. But if you do it successfully, great. You have a business up and running that you own. You keep all the money and hopefully you can sell the business on the back end and make some money there. Mm -hmm. A franchise model is similar in that you own the business, but you're using someone else's idea. So perhaps you're really interested in lawn service business landscaping, but you don't know anything about it. Or you know a little bit about it, but you don't know how to how to operationalize it. You don't know how to run it as a business. So you can go to the Acme lawn care franchise or the, you know, Crystal Landscaping Company, and you pay them a flat fee called a franchise fee. In exchange, you get two things. Number one, you get the right to run a business under their name in a specific region. And they'll train you on how to do it. So they basically, they hand you the playbook. They teach you all their systems, all their policies and their procedures to run a business. So if you don't know how to do it, 
or don't know how to do it their way, they'll teach you. Then, once you're up and running, you pay an ongoing royalty. On average, it's 6% of your gross sales to the franchisor. In exchange, they're there with you the whole way. They're not necessarily telling you what to do, but they're teaching their systems. They're holding you accountable to make sure you're doing things according to brand standards. They're answering your questions. They might also have you contribute a few more percentage points to some kind of uh, national or regional marketing fund. Because since there's so many people who are running the same business in different regions, if you pool your money together, you can then get advertising that you couldn't get as a senior, you know, as a single unit uh, operator. So there are a lot of advantages there. You do pay for it. You pay the one-time, you know, flat fee, and then you pay an ongoing royalty. Um, but they're there with you the entire way. So you own the business. Um, they get a percentage of it of the gross sales, not a profit. They get a percentage, but you're part of something. And what happens often is someone will own an individual business, such as landscaping or your pool service, and they do it for many years, but they realize they want to be able to do it better, and they want to have a recognized brand as part of their exit strategy. So it's easier to sell a McDonald's franchise than you know Joe's Burgers. So being part of a franchise gives you you know potentially more of a payoff on the back end. So that's really the, the difference between an individual business and a franchise business. Uh, franchise business, you're being taught the policies, the procedures, and the systems, and then you pay a percentage of your sales to have access to that information and for the right to run a business under that larger name. Well, no, I mean, that sounds great. I mean, that sounds almost like uh, instant success, right? You know, just add money and all the processes and everything are going to work fantastic because they've already been proven and you just get to sit back and, and cash the checks, right? Oh, if only that were true, Earl. <laughs> that is the myth, and that sets up so many franchise owners for uh, a pretty rough experience. They go into it thinking, all I have to do is just pay the fee and do what I'm t do what they say to do, and then I'll be successful. Because most people don't appreciate what it is that they bring to the business. Uh, you know, I can give you a hammer and show you how to use it. That doesn't mean that suddenly you understand construction. <laughs> you know, uh, so what what the franchisor can't control is how do you how you lead? Like we talked about before about you know the the burdens of command. You know they can't they can't give you all the every single detail about how to engage employees as opposed to just directing them. They can't have you create meaningful, memorable experiences for customers compared to just facilitating transactions. There are so many elements that each person brings to their business. That's actually outside of the scope of what a franchisor teaches you. So McDonald's will show you how to make a Big Mac, and they'll show you the policies and procedures. But as far as your engagement with your employees and customer experiences, they can offer some guidance, but that's really on you. And that's why in any franchise system, you'll find some franchisees who thrive and some who struggle, and most who are somewhere in between. And so the nature of my work is helping franchise business owners understand that and to embrace the human factors of top franchisees so they can get the same results. Mm. Now, just to kind of uh, re reiterate here in case folks weren't listening closely in the bio, you know, you're not talking about theory here. You, you owned and uh, were very successful as a franchise owner. So you, you've done this, right? Oh yeah. I, I'm not terribly interested in theory. I'm interested in making money and yeah. having quality of life and in being in control of my time. 
And so, uh, you know, long before I, I saw, so I owned two edible arrangements franchises for 10 years. So I built one, which became the flagship location in Los Angeles. And then several years later, I acquired a struggling one and we turned it around and made it profitable within a year using some of these concepts that I discovered along the way. So I, I have been there. I've done it. I'm not interested in, you know, reading a motivational book or hearing from someone who's theoretical. Everything I do, you know, I, I talk about in my presentations and my book is either based on real experience or from my experience, you know, coaching and consulting with so many other franchise brands about what top people are doing. So it's all grounded in, in the field. Yeah. No. And, and that's a, that's extremely valuable, right? I mean, because, you know, a lot of people can talk about concepts and theories, but it means, at least to me, and I think to most of my listeners, it means a lot more coming from somebody who's actually been in the trenches, they've done the thing, and they know what they're talking about, and having some success like you have. And I kind of want to circle back to something you just mentioned there, because I think this is one of the things that drives people batty about uh, franchises, right? You, you think that if I go into... Um, let's just say Wendy's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, it should be the same exact experience as going into a Wendy's in Indianapolis, Indiana. And as you mentioned, most of that experience has more to do with the franchise owner than anything else, right? Completely, completely. And that experience you get as a customer is really a direct result of how that owner trains and manages and engages their employees. So it, you know, it starts with that, then that will translate to a better customer experience. Franchisors are actually reluctant to get too involved in how to train and manage employees because of potential concerns around what's called joint employer. So the McDonald's Corporation in Chicago does not want to be seen as the employer of the individual employee who works at a McDonald's location in, you know, rural Illinois. Because if that franchisee does something wrong, they don't pay overtime, you know, they do something wrong, McDonald's Corporation in Chicago doesn't want to get sued. The only person who should get sued there is the owner. So there tends to be in the franchise industry a hands-off approach when it comes to how to manage employees. Consequently, they'll teach you how to make a great hamburger, a great frozen yogurt. They'll teach you pest control. But when it comes to how to really manage and coach employees, you're probably not going to get as much support. And so for that reason, the uh, the experience the employees get and consequently the experience customers get changes dramatically from one franchise location to another. Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, it, we see it everywhere. I mean, anybody who travels, you know, they, they've had these varying experiences. So, I mean, it would seem to me like one of the the top qualities of a franchise owner really would be their leadership skills. Is that accurate? For sure. For sure. So I would take a franchise a franchisee who has great leadership kill great leadership skills, who has just a, buys into an just an adequate franchise concept, will do better than someone who has terrible leadership skills and buys what's typically a very successful concept because they'll ruin the experience for customers. They'll have employees who underperform no matter how good the product or service is. So those people skills are critical. And if you're not, if you don't have it or you're not willing to learn it, stay away from business ownership. Mm. No, I, <laughs> I agree with you a hundred percent on that. So one of the things I like about your book, the wealthy, uh, the wealthy 
franchisee. Try saying both of those words at the same time, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the book, The Wealthy Franchisee, you start off with kind of like uh, a story, if you will. And I always like lessons in a story format. But you talk about the the wealthy franchisee and kind of how they start their day and what, what that day looks like. So what just kind of summarizing it, like what does a, a typical day for a successful wealthy franchisee look like? Well, first, let me define what I mean wealth by wealthy franchisee in the book, because that influences how I would describe their day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously there's a hook in the title. You hear this word wealthy. And so the financial aspect is a part of it. That's one of three criteria to be wealthy is that you're making good money. That's an obvious one. But the second criteria is that you're in control of your time. You can have two franchise owners running the same business, both whom make, let's say, $500,000 a year. If one of them does it working 20 hours a week and the other one is working 80 hours a week, they're not the same thing. Um, and they should be so lucky to be making half a million dollars. Uh, so part of it is being in control of your time. And I've noticed that wealthy franchisees are not slaves to their business. They go to their daughter's volleyball game and their son's sporting events and they're home for dinner and they travel and take vacations. They work hard, but they're not slaves to the business. They're in control of their time. The third of the three criteria is that there's quality of life, that, you know, life is short. You're, you know, we can make more money, but we're never going to get our time back. The time we spend, we want to make sure it's time that we enjoy. And so your franchise business should enable you to enjoy quality of life. So to be a wealthy franchisee means you're making good money, you're in control of your time, and you have quality of life. So the day of a wealthy franchisee is going to vary a little bit depending on what quality of life looks like that franchisee. So the way I describe, you know, as I tell one story in the book, it's someone who they wake up in the morning and they check in with their manager to make sure things are okay. But then they have coffee and then they go to the gym. And they work out. Then they go to their, their business, but they're not necessarily there for eight or 12 hours. They might just go in for a few hours because they're really more focused on smart work rather than hard work. Hard work That putting in long hours, I believe, is a myth for success. A lot of people think that busyness is, is forward progress. They think that activity is productivity. And I don't agree. I In my book, I interviewed some franchisees who own 30, 40, 50 different locations uh, within their franchise, they don't have any more hours in the day than someone who just has one. But they work smart, they work efficiently, and that doesn't always mean necessarily mean eight hours a day or forty hours a week. They focus on the things that matter, and uh, so that gives them more time and more quality of life. So, the wealthy franchisee, yes, they work hard, and certainly in the beginning, as they're building, they're putting in the hard work and they're putting in the hours. They're learning the system. But they also work to make sure that they have other parts of their life as well that allows them to open more businesses or have time for other things that they enjoy. Yeah. So it, and I like the way you define wealth there because, you know, I, I agree with you 100% on that. It's not always just about ringing up the, uh, the bank account. Um, but it, it sounds to me like one of the more critical things that a franchise owner can do to accomplish that is really. Uh, pay attention to who and how they hire, especially like in those management positions, right? Absolutely. And this is one area where I think so many people fall short is in their hiring. They really don't know what they're looking for. You know, they sit down with someone and they just start asking the typical cliche questions that reveal nothing. You know, so tell me a little bit about yourself. 
you know, what's what's your biggest weakness? Uh, you know, uh, and they're just trying to gauge, do I like the person? Well, you're not looking for a friend here. Right. You're looking for a cook, a delivery driver. You're looking for a foreman. You're looking maybe you're looking for a manager. Well, every position you have within your business, uh, it has it requires some very specific traits, some skill sets, some mindsets, some hard skills, and some soft skills. And so, rather than focusing on if you just like the person or what your gut tells you, you need to identify what matters for this position. So, you know, if it's customer service, well, then things like, you know, people skills, communication skills matter. But if it's someone who, you know, is working in the back, they're not interacting with customers, well, maybe being outgoing isn't a trait that matters. You know, maybe you don't have to like them as a person, but, you know, what is their availability? Do they have the skill set? Are they responsible? Every position has its own unique set of characteristics. So the idea is to prepare interview questions that shed light on whether or not the person has the characteristics you're looking for. And the absolute potential superstar employee may not be someone who you personally like. That's fine. You're not taking them out to go drinking. You're hiring them for a job. So the idea is to identify what are the traits you're looking for and then ask questions that shed light on whether or not the person possesses those traits. And Mm. if you do that, you're going to have a much better batting average in terms of hiring employees who will be a good fit not just for your business, but for the position you're hiring them for. Yeah, no, I I love that a lot because, um, you know, I was working with one individual. Uh, we were talking about their hiring process, and they said, "Yeah," and I I don't think Monster still has this up. They may, but they used to have a a link on the homepage at at Monster.com, and it was the top 100 interview questions. And this individual just went there, looked at the top 100 interview questions, picked 10 randomly, and that was how they interviewed. And and what I love about this is it, it makes me feel better about what I feel about interviewing because I said the same thing. It's, you should never ask a question that doesn't have a purpose. You want to find something out about that person, how their beliefs align with your beliefs, how their work ethic really is. Um, and the one question that I love to ask uh, is if you're hired, how do you see yourself successfully executing this position? And, and the reason I like to ask that question is it tells me a lot about that person, right? Because they may, they may have an idea of what it means to be a manager at a fast food restaurant, or they may have an idea of what it means to be a cook that I've never even thought of before. And I may not know that I don't know what they think, right? Yeah. I think I think it's great. I think great interview questions begin with the same five words. Tell me about a time and then fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, and really that's our behavioral interview questions where rather than asking for something theoretical, you're asking them to recall a time where they were in a situation uh, where they had to do something based on what you're looking for. So tell me about a time that you had to lead a, lead a team of people. Tell me about a time when you had to manage through a really stressful situation. Um, tell me about a time when you were being pulled in two different directions and had to make a choice. Um, and then, you know, and they, they're not necessarily going to have a, you know, an answer they've already thought of in advance like they would if you say, tell me a little bit about yourself. But it reveals truth about how they handled certain situations. And so I find that those questions, the behavioral interview questions, really uh, – they, shed a, they, they gave us a lot of information about the person. 
Yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing too, for folks. And, and again, you know, we're, I'm kind of rehashing this here a little bit, but I think it's important to really drive this point home is if you do the due diligence during the hiring process, all positions, but especially for your managers, it makes it easier for you to be able to not have to worry about every aspect of the business because you've got the right people in the right places, right? Uh, absolutely. I say hire slow and fire fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's a story circulating right now. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it was uh, talking about Bruce Arians. Uh, just won the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And um, I guess at the beginning of the season, he had a discussion with his coaches uh, on his staff. Now, keep in mind, if we're looking at this as a franchise model, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they're a franchise team in the NFL, and he is a manager in that system. And he got all of his coaches together, and he basically told them, going back to your three uh, three uh, kind of measurements of wealth, he said, if I catch any one of you missing a kid's softball game, missing a kid's soccer game, not going to a school recital because you're doing something Coaching wise, I'm going to fire you on the spot because you're never going to get those moments back. I've missed too many in my life. I don't want you to miss them in your life. And he set that expectation of that wealth piece of having that kind of work life balance versus just what you hear some of the NFL coaches. I grew up a Washington, now they call them the Washington football team, but I grew up a Washington Redskins fan. And it was one of the things everybody loved about Joe Gibbs is he would show up. He was at the uh, at the stadium 20 hours a day. But even he said, you know, that was no life. I, I missed a lot of stuff in my life. And, and having those right managers that believe that same way not only help you, but they help your other employees be able to enjoy those same things, right? Well, yeah. And, and what he said to those coaches, it's so important because what he is what's, what he's saying beneath the surface is, is I see your humanity. Mm-hmm. I see you as a as a person, not just as an employee, not just as a coach. I recognize your humanity, and it matters to me. I care about that. And when people feel cared about, they start caring. So he's seeing more than the function they provide, more than the contribution. He sees them as human beings, and he expresses care about them and their lives. That is such a great, powerful way to build loyalty and get a higher level of performance. Yeah, 100%. And that carries through so much to the customer experience, which may, brings more people back. So it's it's this, uh, you know, they, they always talk about the proverbial self-licking ice cream cone. But if you take care of these things, you can almost create the self-licking ice cream cone out of this, right? Uh, absolutely. And yes, there is such a connection between recognize the humanity of employees and then how the employees recognize the humanity of customers. I uh, do a lot of presentations in the franchise world for fast food restaurants. The industry calls them quick service. And I, I will often show a chart. Well, I'll put some of the most well-known fast food chains side by side and look at their Yelp reviews. And there is a correlation between Yelp reviews and employee satisfaction scores. And invariably, you see um, I don't want to begrudge anyone, but probably the, all the brands you can think of, the really big quick service restaurants, not so great customer service and not so great employee satisfaction. But then when you look at In-N-Out Burger and you look at Chick-fil-A, who are known for great customer experiences, it directly correlates with high levels of satisfaction among employees. So it starts 
with recognizing the humanity of your employees, expressing care, treating them well, creating a culture, when you do that, it's so much easier for them to then pass that on to customers. So very often customer service is a direct reflection of the culture within the company. Yeah, well, actually, I love what you just did because it was a nice segue to where I was going to know, uh, go next because, you know, listeners, keep in mind, this is an outstanding book packed with a lot of information. And if you think through the course of this interview that Scott and I are going to cover every aspect of the book, it's not going to happen. We we don't have enough time in the show. So it is uh, very imperative to you uh, that you go grab a copy of The Wealthy Franchisee because there's a lot of great information in here that we're probably not going to get a chance to talk about. But one of the things that I do want to chat about here is kind of what you just mentioned, that that critics piece, because with Yelp, with, um, um, oh my goodness, the other one with the owl on it, TripAdvisor, you know, with things like that, that's what most people go to now, especially when they're traveling. When they roll into a new town, they pull up Yelp and they look at the reviews. And that really, that that one piece of data tells a lot of people whether they're going to come to your restaurant or not, right? Oh, it means so much. And I think most consumers now are sophisticated enough not only to look at those things, but to ob- dismiss the obvious extreme examples, whether it's a review that's too glowing or one that's too harsh, um, I think people can tell when someone, you know, if, if you look at a place that has, you know, 100 reviews and 94 of them are just exceptional, and then, you know, someone gives a one star review because their phone call wasn't answered, I think people are smart enough to usually dismiss, you know, dismiss that one. But I don't think uh, enough businesses are sophisticated enough to pay attention to it and use that as a metric for performance. You know, especially when the time came for us to turn around that second edible arrangements location, one of the first things we looked at were the online reviews. And I said, we need to improve that. One, organically, by truly providing a better customer experience. But then number two, we need to then ask our newly happy customers to make sure they go on Yelp and and post things. And we would really, you know, ask them to do that and encourage them to do that. Um, You know, we didn't post fake reviews. We wanted to be organic. So we needed to provide the first provide the level of service that would be worthy of five stars. But then we had to ask for the, the reviews themselves so that that would be reflected. It's so important for a business. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting about a franchise is that people are associating you with other locations. So the last year I owned my two stores, we received two bad reviews on Yelp. Both of them were actually because of experiences they had at neighboring stores that I didn't own. Mm. But But the customer doesn't make any distinction. So one of the you know advantages or disadvantages when you own a franchise is that your brand will be impacted by all the other owners who are part of that brand. So you know it's an important thing when making the decision is what are the other owners like and are these people you'd want representing you? Well, yeah, and and the other thing is is you know there's all these studies that show how uh, kind of inherently negative people are. And you doing what you do, you may actually have a better grasp on this statistic than I do, or maybe there's a new version. But a few years ago, I heard uh, someone say that you had to provide 10 positive experiences to get one positive rating on a, on a Yelp or TripAdvisor or whatever site, versus it was nearly a one-to-one ratio for negative experiences and getting a negative review. 
Does that still kind of hold up? Have you heard that statistic? I, I, I've heard different versions of the same statistic, but I, I think what's Matt doesn't, you know, whether it's 10 to 1 or 20 to 1, the bottom line is when our blood boils, that calls us to action more than when we're happy, unfortunately. So, you know, if you look at the emotional spectrum, if someone's really upset, they're more likely to take an action, you know, retribution or a negative post compared to people who are happy. So because of that, we if we want to get the good online reviews, it's not enough to do a great job. Then you have to ask for the reviews. So with someone at the end of a transaction say, wow, you did a great job. That's when you say, we really appreciate that. Would you mind going online and, and posting a positive review? We have to ask for it. Um because of that, because they may be really happy, but it just won't occur to them to post that review. But from a marketing and branding perspective, it's really important that that information is there. How do you feel about the the kind of strategy that, you know, I've seen some places do where, you know, hey, uh, if you come in and you show us your TripAdvisor review or your Yelp review, uh, we'll give you 10% off your next meal or something like that. I have mixed feelings. If they're willing to give you 10% off, even when you give a bad review, <laughs> I, I think that's better than, uh, you know, just paying for good reviews. Um, I, I feel a little funny about it. Um, you know, I, I want people to post good reviews about anything I do because they genuinely like what I did, not because I'm offering them an incentive. So I think it's okay to ask for it. When you offer an incentive, something about that doesn't sit right with me. Um, I guess if really you're providing great experiences, maybe it doesn't matter that much. But I think our reviews should be earned and not bought. Yeah, no, I agree. Because as a consumer, I always kind of feel that same way, right? It's like it, it, I get what you're trying to do and I appreciate it from the consumer standpoint, but it also kind of almost feels bribish. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I agree 100% with what you said there, too. That's what I tell folks on on here. Like when I ask for reviews on my show and I really do want to hear from my listeners, you know, I want, you know, obviously I don't want a one star review, but if I've done something that's worthy of a one star review, let me know, but give me the feedback. Don't just give me the star. Tell me why and how I earned a one star from you. And, and I think that same type of information is just as valuable to a franchise as it is a five-star review, right? I think in many cases more so because someone who's angry might point out a, a, a genuine problem. But I think there's an auction opportunity. I found in my businesses, I always train my managers and my employees, when someone is unhappy, your goal isn't to say, how would Scott handle this? What does Scott want? Your goal with that is... The question I want you to answer is, what's it going to take to not only make this customer happy, but to make sure they come back? Whether it's issuing a refund, a discount, throwing something in, an apology, whatever it is, I want that angry customer converted to a customer for life. What they're expecting is the employee or the owner to get defensive, to argue. And I just didn't worry about that. I wasn't in it to win arguments or to build my ego. I was there to build a business. And you can win an argument, lose a customer. I don't look at that as a win. So it was always about what is this? What's the customer really care about, um, and how can we make them happy? Whether it's our fault or not, you know, the customer is not always right, but the customer is always the customer. They're the ones with the money. So I'm interested in that customer coming back, and I'm interested in that customer saying good things. When a customer posts something negative online. We must respond, not only because that customer needs to hear it, because everyone else is there reading and watching. We want to control the narrative. So if someone says, you're the worst company ever, 
if I when I read that, I want to know if the company responds. The company says, I'm really sorry that was your experience. Would love to make it right. Here's my email address. Give me a call. Then I see the company cares. I know there's two sides of the story. But when the business doesn't respond to that negative review, well, then that person gets the last word. So I think it's important we get the feedback, that we correct it, that we never argue with the person, and we do what we can to make them right. I do believe in firing customers if if they're just unreasonable, yeah. but I don't think we should let our egos stop us from doing what's going to make the customer happy and more importantly, what's going to make the customer spend more money in the future. Yeah, 100%. And, and I'll talk to it from the, from the customer side, right? It, it, I think it's important for customers to understand that that kind of goes both ways. And one of the things that I try to do is I try to go out of my way uh, to to let a, a, a business know when they've done something great. And uh, the first time I did it, you know, it was a kick I got on several years ago. And the first time I did it, I unintentionally, I think I scared uh I think I scared the business because, you know, I, I did probably what everybody does that wants to complain. I called up and, you know, nice person answers the phone. And I was like, you know, uh, is there a manager available? And they're like, uh, yeah, hold on a second. And so the manager gets on the phone. It was a pizza place. And they're like, uh, you could tell, like you could hear in their voice that they were braced for, for something. Right. And I said, look, I just want to let you know whoever made the pizza tonight made one of the best pizzas I've ever had in my life. You need to give that person a raise right now. And it was just like, you know, you could hear the walls crumble and they're like, Oh, thank you very much. I'll let the chef know, or I'll let the cook know. Uh, really appreciate it. We don't hear positive feedback that directly that often. I think customers have to kind of realize a bit of their responsibility in this service customer relationship, right? Absolutely. But also remember that, you know, if you're a business owner, um, you're also a customer of your employees. You're paying for their work. They need praise as well. Mm -hmm. They need to be told, hey, you know what? I paid you and you're doing an awesome job. I really appreciate you. Employees need to hear that just like businesses need to hear it. And so uh, I think that's a, a good perspective. We need to be very generous with our praise, certainly at least as generous as we are with our criticism. I love it. So one of the things that you talk about in your book, I'm going to go back to that here for a second. Uh, you've got a, uh, a chapter titled blow their minds, grow your business. Now in a franchise world where everything is supposed to be relatively cookie cutter, you're expected to pretty much do everything the same way. How can you really quote blow somebody's mind? Well, it's a myth that it's cookie cutter. What is cookie cutter are the systems and the operations, but the experience you give your customers is not. And so that is up to whether you're a franchise business owner or you own a mom and pop or you're you know part of the corporation, uh, you need to really blow the minds of your customers and your clients. And you know, there's only so much that a boss or a franchisor or you know whatever corporate policy is, there's only so much you can get from that. It's really on you to do that. But that's what matters. You know, people want value. And that value isn't just the product, service, or solution you sell. It's also the experience that you give them. People remember less what they got and more what they felt. So I don't care what you're selling. You're in the people business and your job is to use your products, services, and solutions and the delivery of those things to elevate the customer's emotional state. You exist to make people feel better. 
because it's their emotions that will make the impression. And that will determine if they remember you, if they talk about you, and if they come back. So it's not enough to sell ice cream cones to facilitate transactions. In the process of taking their money and giving them the ice cream, you need to find a way to make them feel better through your interaction, through a good warm greeting, by very quickly finding a way to connect, to identify emotionally what does this person want, even if in the most small nuanced way, what kind of experience is this person looking for and how can I make that happen? And that experience might be friendliness, it might be speed, it might be savings. Our job is to pay attention and then emphasize that. That's how we create customized experiences that make people happy. You do that in a competitive market, you're going to win. Yeah, I love that because I mean it's true. It's exactly it's exactly true. And uh you know, I think that's that's it's easy to it's easier to do than what most people think, right? So like I I'll give you an example. Uh I used to live in New Mexico, went down to Roswell. The McDonald's in Roswell <laughs> They had like their very standard play palace kind of thing going on there, right? But because it was Roswell, everything there had that kind of alien theme to it. You know, uh, Ronald had kind of like the, you know, the little antenna thing on it. And it made that experience very unique to Roswell. And it was just amazing. Like to this day, I don't talk about any other McDonald's franchise I've ever been to, but that one. And it wasn't some grand overt gesture. It was just something as simple as, as blending in and, and, and being a part of the community that that can do it. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, but you know, not to, not to give them the credit they deserve, but really that's just decor. Right? right. So you could go to New Orleans and maybe the McDonald's has, you know, some kind of jazz theme or something or, uh, you know, that stuff is great. But ultimately, what creates an experience is less the, you know, the, the decor and it's more about the interactions. And unlike decor, the interactions requires training and attention. It's got to be something that you're on top of. That's what's going to make people feel things more than anything else. At least in that case, you know, the owner there said, hey, let's do something here to kind of honor where we are. At least they're, be, they're being thoughtful about part of the experience, which is the the physical atmosphere. Hopefully, they're then reinforcing that with great interactions between employees and customers. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I agree. Now, we've been talking about this a lot from the, the franchisee uh, perspective. But I think, you know, the one thing that uh, a lot of people don't really get is when we think about franchisors, we do think about typically the 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 big ones, right? The fast food chains, maybe the movie theaters, the, the big names. But you don't have to be, you know, a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A to have franchisees. You could be a relatively small but well-organized business. Like one of my favorite franchises that's uh, up and coming right now, and I really hope that they take over the planet, uh, is called And Pizza. I don't know if you've ever heard of And Pizza out on the West Coast because it seems to be mostly East Coast. I, I've I've read about them, and it's And. It's actually the ampersand symbol, right? right? Yeah, yep. it's like ampersand, yeah, the And Pizza. So I haven't been to one, but I'm aware of them. Oh yeah, and, and they're they're fantastic. I've been to two or three different ones. I think there's twenty or thirty franchises right now. Uh, but 
everyone I've been to has had that great customer experience. I, I, every time I fly into uh, Reagan uh, National Airport in D.C., you know, that's one of the places I stop. It just always happens to be right by that gate. But what's crazy is the volume of people that go through there, they know me. Like, I'll, I'll walk through and, like, uh, there's at least two or three people there that know me. Now, maybe that says more about me and how many times I've been there. Uh, but <laughs> you, you do have a lot of pizza stories, Earl. So. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I'm yeah. Uh, I mean, I always said, I don't understand why pizza is not healthier than it is. It has all the four basic food groups in it, right? <laughs> yeah, um, you, keep, you keep telling yourself that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're learning a lot about Earl in this show. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the point is, is... Uh, where I was going with this is you can be a relatively small franchise or that's just starting. I mean, McDonald's didn't start up with many stores as they did. They started with one restaurant. What responsibility does the franchise or have, especially if they're a younger, smaller startup organization to provide some of these things for their, their new franchisees? Legally, their responsibility is to adhere to local laws and regulations, which varies from state to state. And contractually, they're obligated to make good on everything in the franchise agreement. Typically, what's in the franchise agreement says nothing about the human side of the business, which is, you know, helping franchisees emotionally deal with the rough times and bad economies. It doesn't say much about, you know, helping them really understand how to connect with customers and inspire employees. It'll say things like operational support. We'll teach you our systems. We'll, you know, do X, Y, and Z in terms of marketing. You know, the average franchisor, if they're experts at all, and hopefully they are, they're experts in pizza, in hamburgers, in senior in-home care, in pest control. They're not necessarily experts in the human mindset, and in culture, in all the human elements that directly impact how well the business owner executes. That's the stuff that I focus on. It's what my book is about. It's what my presentations are about. It's why they bring me in. But the franchisors, that's not their area of expertise. And it doesn't have to be. One of the things I say in the book is if you have to choose between two franchisors and one has a great operational system but only adequate people support and the other one has amazing people support but not necessarily a great operation, go for the one with the great operation. Go for the one that has great recipes and great systems because the human side, you can take care of on your own. You can get, you know, do what it takes to motivate yourself, to keep a clear head. You can learn about how to, you know, engage and inspire employees and how to provide great customer experiences. I mean, again, folks like me are out there helping business owners do these things. The value for a franchisor is in the operational help. The best franchisors though, do provide that added help. They focus a lot on culture. They focus a lot on encouraging their franchisees and not just instructing them. They focus on those human elements. Those those chains existed. I've worked with them. I interviewed a number of those franchisors for my book. So it's a great asset if you're in business with a franchisor that provides those things. But typically, we can't expect it from them because it's just not what they're legally required or contractually required to provide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're right. And it it's just, um, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's something that franchisees need to know buying a franchise, right, is is what uh, you mentioned the agreement. Like, it's like any other contract. You really need to understand what your agreement is before you get into it. 
so I like that. I like that advice there because, uh, you know, it's an important distinction to make is what are, what are the, the relationship criteria that you're going to have to adhere to? Uh, and I, I think that people go into it with incorrect uh, assumptions or incorrect expectations about their franchisor and they don't take enough responsibility for their own decisions. And then when suddenly the business is harder than they thought, that the money isn't flowing as much or as quickly as they thought, their first instinct is to point to the franchisor and say, you exploited me. And it does happen, but it's pretty rare. Usually the franchisee did not have realistic expectations or when they thought about all things that would make it great, they didn't think, wow, I can't wait for my employees to ghost on me. And I can't wait to have an angry customer who just can't be sad. No one fantasizes about those things, but they are part of the reality. And when you're not happy, it's it's tempting to want to blame someone and the franchisor is the easy choice. You got to read your franchise agreement to really understand what to expect and what not to expect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, listeners, uh, we're talking with Scott Greenberg, uh, author of The Wealthy Franchisee, Game-Changing Steps to Becoming a Thriving Franchise Superstar. And Scott, we've been talking here for you know roughly 45 minutes or so, and it's been some great conversation. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight uh, with my listeners. I really appreciate that. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And And before we wrap up here, you know, is there anything, because we covered a decent amount of territory, and like I told the listeners, we didn't cover everything in the book, and there's still a lot of meat left on this bone, so go get the book. Uh, but is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you really want to leave listeners with before we go? Yeah, I think that anybody who owns a business, franchise or not, has to understand how important it is that they market the business. It's not enough to run it. People need to know about it. So just so I can walk my talk, I'm going to market my own business right now. Not, and it's totally altruistic, just a, just a role model here. Um, so yes, I coach franchisees. I speak to franchise organizations, but I also work with non-franchise organizations as well on the human elements that enable people to succeed. So my website is scottgreenberg.com, B-E-R-G, uh, scottgreenberg.com. Uh, the book is The Wealthy Franchisee, which is available on Amazon, wherever books are sold. And I'm actually about to launch an online course for um, current or aspiring franchise business owners. It's a 14-week program where there's instruction and coaching and, most importantly, action items so you can take your business to the next level. And anybody who wants information on that, just go to thewealthyfranchisee.com. Um that's all the information on there. So it's, that's me. And you can find me on social media and I'm happy to connect with anyone. Outstanding. And, and listeners, as always, I'll have links to all of those in the show notes for this show. Um, just curious about that, that course. Um, if you are someone who's looking, let's say you've got a successful restaurant and you are wanting to maybe look into franchising the concept, would, would that course help them out or... Yeah, probably 90% of both my book and the course really aren't franchise specific. Because I have experience there, that's a, a market where I, I have some momentum. I've kind of, you know, packaged it that way. But there are modules on customer service. There's modules on how to identify great employees and build teams. I have a, a employee coaching model that I teach. I talk about the mindset of high-performance leadership. These things are not franchise-specific. There is one module. It's about how to build a great partnership with your franchisor. But even there, there's there's value on building great partnerships. So, uh, yeah, but whether you currently own a business or you're aspiring, both the book and the course, I think, would be really, really helpful. 
Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, there you have it, folks. You got a book. They got a course coming up and we're going to have links to all those in the show notes here. And, uh, if you want to reach out and get yourself a, uh, uh, a great resource, Scott's left his information and I highly encourage you to reach out to him. So, uh, again, Scott, thank you very much for spending this time with, uh, myself and my guests. Uh, you've almost got me wanting to go and, and start up a franchise. So good job. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Listeners, uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for, uh, you know, doing everything you do to support the show. We talked a lot about, uh, you know, uh, cr- critics and ratings earlier. I'm in it. I want you all to take the time and, and give me reviews. If I've only earned one or two stars, let me know why. If I've earned five stars, please don't just leave a five-star review. Let me know why I'm worth five stars uh, of your time. And I really appreciate you all uh, doing those ratings because of the way the algorithms work. They help the shows get more prominence. And they help great guests. Uh, that I've been blessed to have, like Scott, share their message further and uh, reach more people. So you have a responsibility to help uh, these messages get spread just as much as I do. Um, and be sure that uh, you're reaching out to me if you have any comments or questions. You know, burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. With that, thank you for your time. Really appreciate you all being great guests. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the chair? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.